welcome to our monthly pharmacotherapy podcast. My name is Carrie Sims, and I serve as ACCP staff support for the Pharmacotherapy Board of Directors. And we are privileged today to have a guest with us, Dr. Susan Conway, who is the lead author on an article that is coming up in the February issue of Pharmacotherapy, and it's titled, Laboratory and Clinical Monitoring of Direct-Acting Oral Anticoagulants, What Clinicians Need to Know. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Can you give us just a little bit of background about yourself, about your practice, maybe how you became involved in managing patients on anticoagulation? Sure. I completed a residency in primary care at Methodist Healthcare in Memphis, uh, in 1999, and since completing that training, I've been in a co-funded position with the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy and with Integris Health Anticoagulation Clinics. Uh, currently, we have two anticoagulation clinics that manage about 900 patients a month. My interest in the field uh, first came from just my desire to work with patients in the ambulatory setting. I got drawn to anticoagulation because those patients have such a high frequency of follow-up that you really get to build relationships and assist them with their medications um, over the long term, Um, and really got drawn to helping patients that have been on warfarin for many years and just frustrated by um, their lack of understanding of it, their lack of um, control, constantly having to go in for a regular lab test, and just being able to get them enrolled in a coordinated care setting where uh, we can help them understand more about their medications and help them achieve better INR stability over what they may have been achieving in their routine medical care clinic. Great. So have you seen a significant out, um, impact on patient outcomes from pharmacy involvement in managing these patients? Yes. Um, I feel like this is really one of the first areas where uh, inventory pharmacists have shown that they have value in managing medications on the outpatient setting. Um, So when I got into this area, there were already several established studies uh, looking at anticoagulation clinics versus routine medical care. Uh, We did this internal data collection in our clinics uh, early on and showed that we achieved better INR control, uh, less thromboembolic events, and less bleeding complications in patients managed in a coordinated pharmacist-run anticoagulation clinic uh, compared to usual medical care. Great. In the manuscript coming out in the February issue, um, we talk about what clinicians need to know. Uh, When we refer to clinicians, there's a, a broad range. It could be someone like myself who the last time I saw an anticoag patient, there was only one oral anticoagulant, or someone like yourself who works daily with these patients, can you kind of describe what type of clinician this this manuscript is targeted towards? Sure, uh, we really feel it's targeted towards uh, both or all all really all healthcare providers, and we're kind of intentional about using that term clinicians. Um, so anybody that might be involved in a patient that is on anticoagulation therapy, uh, we feel like this paper is written to help the generalist understand an overview of the current lab and clinical monitoring recommendations for DOAX, <clears throat> but it also provides that detailed um, information on the current understanding of what tests are currently available and coming down the pike, as well as detailed guidance of how to manage specific patient populations on DOAX. 
for those that are involved in anticoagulation management services. Okay. Um, we're used to just, you know, when we think of anticoag, let's go to the chest guidelines, um, and you can't necessarily do that for this area yet. Is there, do you think that this paper and your recommendations, um, how do those build on the published recommendations that came out of Europe earlier? Um, well, I feel like this um, paper is in congruence with the European Heart Rhythm Association guidelines that came out um, about 16 months ago and goes a, another step further to, to really help us understand how we should be managing patients on certain drugs that are known to interact with DOAX or how we should manage patients with comorbid conditions like renal dysfunction or liver dysfunction. So I think it, it really builds upon those and provides more detailed guidance. Uh, really what initiated this project for us is we were hoping to seek um, to provide guidance um, to questions that really feel kind of unanswered or there's not a go-to resource that you can just pull that helps you understand, okay, how should we best be monitoring these patients? That's great. And I can say from just putting this article out on social media before it was even, you know, available full finished version, it was already getting quite a bit of action. And so I wanted to give us an opportunity to talk more about it today. So I suspect that um, with the what, greater than 50-year drought in the approval of any new oral anticoagulants since the approval of warfarin years ago, um, that there's a lot of, a lot of hesitation um, in how to monitor these direct-acting oral anticoagulants. Have you seen or heard of any inappropriate monitoring within clinical practices that you're hoping that this paper will kind of um, approach or give them some guidance or point out, may basically be a mirror as to what what is going wrong there? Uh, yes, so he certainly hope, hope so. Um, I feel like in my area what I've observed more than anything is just uh, a quick comfort level that's happened with these agents and prescribing them uh, and really not much thought given to the monitoring. I think certainly uh, with the Bigotran, the first one to come out in 2011, uh, many case reports came about um, of bleeding and even fatal bleeding with patients on the Bigotran. And if you look into every one of those case reports, they all had renal dysfunction and all the patients should have been on reduced doses or should have not qualified to, to be prescribed. Um, that direct thrombin inhibitor. Um, so there was some added attention and added detailing that happened after that of the importance of screening renal function at, at the start of therapy. But um, I still feel like um, we're kind of losing that ongoing monitoring once we put them on therapy. Um, so hopefully this paper will help highlight to people the importance of not just uh, patient selection at the start of a DOAC, but the ongoing monitoring that's needed. Yes, they don't require INR testing every two to four weeks like we're used to with warfarin, but they do require clinical monitoring at least at a three to six month interval. Um, and as things are more taken out of the hands of the pharmacist run anticoagulation clinics, because we don't typically follow the DOACs um, like we had with warfarin, it's relying on our physicians and the pharmacists that are potentially integrated within their office um, to assure that that ongoing clinical monitoring is being done for this new class. Great point. Um, 
And most of our listening audience is probably aware that when we speak of this general class of DOACs that we're kind of grouping the two subcategories of the direct thrombin inhibitor, the bigotran, like you said, but also the factor 10A inhibitors. Um, your group does a really great job of summarizing these tests in a, a table one in the manuscript. And so it reminds us of some of the basics, like we're not going to look at 10A levels because they won't tell us anything about a thrombin inhibitor. And, you know, vice versa, thrombin time measurements won't tell us anything about 10A inhibitors. But it also looks, you know, at more closely. Um, and I was looking at some of the more detailed tests in the I was looking specifically the dilute thrombin time and the Eckerin clotting time both appear to be suitable for um, assessing the anticoagulant activity of dabigatran. Are there scenarios in that case where you would choose one or the other, or is it more likely that you would use a different test altogether? I don't think we have enough evidence to really point to favoring one, one test over the other. I think the reality is it's based on what our labs um, can run for us or what our turnaround time is. I think we are accumulating a number of tests that now we know are sensitive and can provide some quantitative assessment. And yes, that, that table one hopefully will, will guide the readers to know and categorize, okay, for direct thrombin inhibitors, that quantitative test could be that direct thrombin time or echoing clotting time. Whereas when we're talking about 10A inhibitors, such as apixaban, adoxaban, or ribaroxaban, uh, we might be looking towards other other tests like an anti-factor 10A um, calibrate to that specific drug. So I think a lot of that's going to be dependent on a lab availability and accessibility. I don't know that any one specific test, once we're talking about those that are known to be sensitive, um, has really come to light to be favorable over another. Yeah, you do specify that some tests are not widely available. Uh, based on some of the early evidence, is there any particular test that you see getting pushed more to the front that is more likely to be available based on some of the early evidence or maybe the, um, the actual process of testing and ease of testing or is it kind of still a guessing game? I really feel like at this point it's still a bit of a guessing game. Um, most hopeful that the chromogenic anti-factor 10 ASA will be most useful for our patients on the factor 10A inhibitors because that, that test has been available for monitoring moment heparin, so we have a little bit more experience with it. But we do have to keep in mind that that has to be calibrated by specific anticoagulant. By and large, we don't have even though we have some tests and ideas of what could be measured, there's not well-established target ranges that we know that we're shooting for when we measure these. Um, so still a lot is being investigated and learned about these agents um, and the appropriate um, coagulation testing for them. I think in the clinical scenario where it's going to be most of most interest that you'd even need to or want to measure a coagulation assay is a patient that presents that had a recurrent thromboembolic event and you're trying to figure out whether they've been taking the drug or had non-adherence that contributed to that. So the, the reason for the coagulation assay would just see if they have adequate amounts of that drug in their system. Um, and then the other scenario would be the, the patient that's bleeding or needing urgent surgery to see if that drug is cleared. So those are kind of the two scenarios where um, I think in the clinical environment, we're wanting these coagulation um, tests, so 
like I said, it kind of comes down to what your lab has availability for and then understanding what's going to give us a quantitative number of just the measurement of, of um, that drug in the system versus what can just say, yeah, they have that on board versus not, but not sensitive enough to say um, that's super therapeutic or therapeutic as we're so used to with an INR for warfarin or an APTT for heparin. Right, and old habits are hard to break for sure. Um, outside of the, the laboratory monitoring, you've got clinicians who have spent years of interacting with their anticoag patients, you know, every two to four weeks. Um, do you think that the, the DOAC studies that we have have been sufficient in length and sufficient in the outcomes that they've measured to really assess that um, that decreased interaction time um, of having that phone contact or face-to-face -face contact every every two to four weeks. Uh, I can certainly appreciate that fear. I've spent my career managing patients in a warfarin clinic and used to that face-to-face -face interaction. And um, looking at the clinical studies that if I got these drugs to market, they did have pretty regular interactions with the patients uh, in um, study visit follow-ups. So I think <clears throat> the jury's probably still out on that, and it's going to be mainly based on real-world data and see how patients um, do with these in the real world. Um, most of their monitoring is really left up to who's prescribing it um, to be accountable to monitor renal function, assess for new drug interactions or disease interactions to make sure the therapy is appropriate to be continued or appropriate in the dose that it's been given. And then probably that adherence uh, monitoring that used to occur so regularly within the anticoagulation clinic setting probably comes down to the, the retail pharmacists that are filling those medications um, to, to really uh, stress the importance of adherence, be looking at refill history when they come in, and um, kind of keep that accountability measure that we're so used to having in the in the anticoagulation clinic setting. So I know that's a fear for myself and others that are so used to that close monitoring that patients got in the anticoagulation clinic. These medications have just as many risks with them and have just the same importance for adherence, but they aren't getting that same focused intervention anymore. So I'll have to see how everything kind of plays out with real-world real experience if patients do just as well clinical outcome-wise as they did in the studies. I feel like in the clinical studies, they did monitor them regularly. So now it's to see how that translates into to regular clinical practice. Right. And as you touched on earlier, these aren't drugs that you can just prescribe and not monitor at all. Once you consider the concomitant drug therapy, the disease states, and your special populations, is there really very many people that fall outside of that three to six months or any longer than the three to six months? I think when you look at the VTE population, we do generally see younger patients and healthier patients that can most likely um, be monitored at every six-month interval. Uh, but when you look into the typical AFib population, you're going to see many more patients with some level of renal impairment, usually with EGFRs less than 60. Um, those commonly might be over 75 years of age or on concomitant drug interactions that would really warrant a closer follow-up, usually around the three-month mark, um, not only to, to, to assess renal function, but to reassess adherence, bleeding complications, thermobolic symptoms, and any changes in comorbidities or concomitant drugs. 
in your uh, your flow diagram in the manuscript. Your figure one actually is what it is. Does a great job of helping you determine if where people do fall on the three month or six month or whatnot. Um, and when I when I go to use that, um, and I say, okay, well, I need to monitor them at three months. Then is that saying that I need to monitor them for things like you said, signs of bleeding, any new um, changes in renal function, things like that, or are we actually thinking that we're drawing some of the um, DOAC assays and things like that at those three to six month marks? It's really more for clinical monitoring, the first thing. So uh, renal function, looking at adherence, looking at the patient in terms of bleeding from embolic symptoms, looking for changes in drug therapy or comorbidities such as liver, liver dysfunction. Uh, coagulation testing is, is not recommended, um, and it's still not indicated uh, for routine monitoring of patients on DOACs. And as we lay out, as we've already discussed here, the, those tests are really not advanced enough and routinely available enough to even be implemented in that setting, nor are they necessary, but it is necessary from a clinical stance to make sure renal function is still appropriate to the drug being prescribed and the dose being prescribed and still important. Um, these are very high-risk drugs with uh, significant rates of major bleeding that we need to be monitoring the patients clinically um, to see how they're doing on them. Well, thank you. Is there anything um, that you had to add that we didn't touch on? We certainly appreciate the perspective that you have added to this piece already. <clears throat> Um, I just really hope people check out our article. Uh, I hope they find that figure one useful as, as a monitoring tool that is something they could implement within their practices to give you guidance on just how frequent and what things can be included in monitoring the DOACs. Uh, we really want that to be a good take-home tool that people could implement uh, within their settings um, to help uh, better manage and monitor patients on DOAC therapy. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Conway. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.